0: Good morning. good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, that we will be able to put the pieces together of this controversy between uh, you and, and evil, and that we can be participants in your kingdom and share the good news of your character of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So today we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly Proverbs, and the title of this week is Words of Truth. And in the uh, Sabbath lesson, first two paragraphs, it says... Some of this week's proverbs show parallels with Egyptian texts. Under inspiration Solomon might have sh- might have shaped these texts according to the, a specific sp- specifically Hebrew perspective. Here are the words of the Egyptians meet the spirit of God of Israel's God and thus they became divine revelation. This observation is important for it reminds us the universal character of truth. What is true for the Israelite should also be true for the Egyptian, otherwise it would not be truth. It is important to remember that God's truths apply universally to everyone. First question, you notice how it said, "Here the words of the Egyptians, meet the spirit of Israel's God, and thus they became divine revelations? Were they not divine res- revelations until Solomon wrote them? When the Egyptian philosophers wrote them? If they were true, were they still divine revelations, or they're not divine revelations unless a prophet of God writes them?
1: Truth is truth. No.
0: I like where you're going. Yeah, truth is truth, he said. Well, here is from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on this subject matter, Desire of Ages, page 59. The wise men of the East, these are the ones who came to visit Christ, were philosophers. We love philosophers, don't we? Um, theologians generally, you know, I said that at tongue-in-cheek because sometimes the- theologians criticize philosophy. We shouldn't really study philosophy, we should study theology. But anyway, um, the wise men from the East were philosophers. They belonged to a large and influential class that included men of noble birth and comprised much of the wealth and learning of their nation. Among these were men who imposed on the credulity of the people. Others were upright men who studied the indications of providence in nature. The indications of providence in nature, and who were honored for their integrity and wisdom. Of this character were the wise men who came to Jesus. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. Do you hear that? The light of God is ever shining. As these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the Creator. The glory. What's another word for the glory? The character, the circle of giving, the beneficence, the design that we've we've talked about many times. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew scriptures. In their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of a divine teacher in their own land were prophetic. Isn't that interesting? Balaam belonged to the magicians, though at one time a prophet of God. By the Holy Spirit, he had foretold the prosperity of Israel and the appearing of the Messiah, and his prophecies had been handed down by tradition from century to century. But in the Old Testament, the Savior's advent was more clearly revealed. Were the prophecies in these other... What was the... How did it say here? Um treasured prophetic writings that predicted... Were these treasured prophetic writings of these other religious groups uninspired?
2: All truth is a divine revelation.
0: Oh, some of you look real uncomfortable with this. <laughs> you see? If it's truth, see, is truth less inspired if it comes from a non-Christian source? No. no. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Do you know that this is a bias that many people have? One of the criticisms of the immature in Christ, the childlike in Christ, is to criticize the source rather than evaluating the message to see whether it's consistent with divine truth. Some time ago, when I first became familiar with Kohlberg and his six levels, we're going to do seven levels of moral development, and he uh, did six levels of moral development and presented them, one of the legally-minded critics of our class criticized on the basis that he was a humanist. And we can't have truth coming from a humanist. Therefore, we shouldn't believe what, what I was suggesting because a humanist wrote some of these things. Humanists can't be enlightened by God? They can't discover truth? Hmm.
1: did Nebuchadnezzar write?
0: I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar wrote or not. I don't know. Do you see the foolishness of such arguments? If it is truth... Then it, it, then it is inspired for all truth comes from God. But people argue, uh, people argue this as a way of devaluing and ignoring truth and rejecting something that doesn't fit their current view. This is why they use this argument. I've seen the same method done with Ellen White. Arguing that she plagiarized something. If she plagiarized it, then we can't have value in it. We can't, we can't, we can't trust it. We won't, we won't read it. We won't, we won't use it. Well, I use this analogy for those people. Imagine your wife had cancer and an oncologist published a new treatment in the Archives of Internal Medicine, which works. It actually puts the cancer into remission for who take it, but you discover sometime later that he plagiarized his work from somebody else's work. Would you then not give your wife the treatment who was dying from cancer? Well, it's plagiarized. Well, it doesn't really matter, does it? The question is, is it true and does it work? That's the question, isn't it? By that definition, Christ was a plagiarist. I mean, he quoted Old Testament scripture. But he didn't write it and publish it and put his name under it as the author. It was published in the New Testament. (laughs) But he didn't write it, see? (laughs) I'm with you, I'm with you there, though. I'm following you, I'm following you. So the question isn't whether something was plagiarized, but whether it's true. That's the question. Likewise, if you're talking to non-Adventists about the inspiration of Ellen White, you ever had an Adventist, you believe Ellen White's a prophet. You take her writings like uh, like the prophetic that she's inspired. What do you say to that? My answer is very straightforward. I say to them, isn't it uh, true that spiritual things are spiritually discerned? That the carnal mind cannot understand spiritual truth without the help of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely, they'll say. Then to the degree that any human writing or human person speaks or writes truth, whether it's Billy Graham, Max Licato, Martin Luther, or Ellen White... They're only able to do it as the Holy Spirit enlightens their mind and enables them to do so. So stop focusing on whether you call her a prophet or not and instead focus on the writings and determine if it's consistent with scripture and whether it's true or not. See, this, these, these arguments about, well, you think you're arguing whether she's inspired or not misses the whole point. Then you're, not, then you're not actually evaluating the quality of the work to see whether there's truth there that can transform your life and bring you closer to Jesus. It's one of the devil's strategies. So the question for, for for you all, have you developed the ability, remember it says in Hebrews, the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong? Hebrews 5.14. Have you developed the ability to recognize truth without someone else telling you it's true? Or for the Adventists, have you developed the ability to tell what's true without an G white quote to tell you it's okay to believe it that way? I can't tell you how many Adventists I've seen. I present truth from Scripture. I present a certain interpretation. And if there's not an Ellen White quote that will support me in it, they won't believe it. They have to have an Ellen White quote. There's also a lot of people
1: who will not, if they are a Seventh-day Adventists, will not accept anything that's... Not
0: written by a Seventh-day Adventist. That's, that's another point. You won't read materials unless it's written by a Seventh-day Adventist. That's correct. And
2: it doesn't matter whether it, they're a of God or not. If they're not a member of the
1: Seventh-day Adventist denomination, if they're a Baptist or whatever other denomination, they can't they can't be led of God. There's, there's some real sick thinking.
0: There. And so that shows you that these are children. They haven't developed the ability to think for themselves and discern right from wrong. But for those... Who need that all and white quote? This is at a Christian education. First one is one page 193, and it says, "All truth, whether in nature or in revelation, is consistent with itself in all its manifestations." So, so if you understand truth now, truth works. Then you can go and look at new ideas, and you can compare it because you can see well that, that is not consistent with revelation in nature. It, it's something in this there's, there's, we're misunderstanding in somewhat. And then the next quote is Christian education 246. In the pursuit of knowledge. He is searching for truth, and all truth comes from God, the source of truth. All truth comes from God. So what I said earlier about all truth coming from God, therefore it's inspired. You see, I've got an Ellen White quote, so I'm, I'm still orthodox, you see.
1: <laughs> but even if there's a quote or a Bible verse given, we still have the responsibility to check out the context. Absolutely. We, we just can't take that one nugget. And- exactly. Exactly. Responsibly I Saw a cartoon this week that showed a like a
2: organizational chart turned on its side. AD one, now as in one AD over here, and then all the branching. And it
1: says, "Here's where we came into existence." It's Finally understood what the Bible really says. Isn't Jesus lucky to have us?
0: <laughs> Did y'all hear that? Okay, he said he saw an organizational chart that showed a- AD. One, the year right after Christ. And then all this branching out of different groups and thought processes way down here in 2015. There's a little little branch down here from all this branching. And it says, finally discover what the Bible means. Isn't Jesus lucky to have us?
1: <laughs> <coughs>
0: yeah, that's good. <clears throat> when we think of the levels of moral decision-making, what level does one have to achieve to be able to discern what is true? And as I looked at this, my, my current thought on this is at least level five. Level four and below are what Paul describes as the immature, those who are not acquainted with righteousness and haven't developed the ability yet to discern right from wrong. Level five is where you first start to love other people. That's level five, love for other people. And your thinking shifts from a self-centered orientation of uh, what do I have to do in order to not get punished? What do I have to do to get the best deal? What do I have to do in order to keep the rules? What do I have to do so no bad deed is ledgered against my account in heaven? That's level four and below. Level five is, what do I have to do to help others? Level six, how do I live in harmony with God's design? Level seven, how do I fulfill his purposes? And so least level five before you really can be able to make that distinction between love and selfishness. Because level four, you might be religious, but you're still self-centered. Level four is preoccupied with factual correctness, defined doctrines, creeds, fundamental beliefs, correct rituals, precise definitions, agreement in cognitive understanding and behavioral conformity even if it hurts others to achieve it. Thus we must have our, our institutional systems to police that everyone's thoughts are actually in agreement. Just look at the Reformation and how people were willing to burn others at the stake if they believed differently about sacred re- relics or role of the church or the validity of the Pope as the vicar of Christ or many other doctrinal issues. If you didn't believe the way we did, then, then we must burn you for that. And it went both ways during the Reformation. Why did the persecution of people for believing differently than you stop? Was it because the religious people became so mature that they began practicing the law of liberty and granting freedom to others? Well, perhaps some. William Penn. William Penn practiced these principles, promoted these principles in Pennsylvania. Found it, if you read his writings, very much so this way. But it was much more likely, if you look at history, that the states... Took power from the from the religious and wouldn't allow them to enforce their religious view with state law anymore. Or constitution. If you look at what happens in some segments of Islam today, where Islam gains control over government. What are they doing for those? How are women treated there? What happens if you don't dress the way you're supposed to dress as a woman in these parts of the world today? They stone you. They stone you. Or they burn you. Or they burn you, or they behead you, or whatever. What happens if you're in certain parts of the Islamic world today and you convert to Christianity? They behead you. They behead you. This is exactly right.
2: And, and that's not just uh, the, uh, the Islam world. Uh, back when there was, exactly, there are sects here. There was the one out in the Northwest years ago that were trying to take over the counties and, and uh, shift the population vote of the, the county and hope to take over in the state.
0: So it's happening here too. Do you think, do you think the Christian world would, would do much better if we actually had absolute control over the, uh, the, the laws of the land? So in the lesson, it talks about that God's truth should be recognized by all peoples, regardless of religion or nationality or otherwise, whether believers or non-believers. What, what kind of truth is that? If we're talking law, then what kind of law is that? That should be recognizable for all peoples. It's design law, laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of health, law, the laws upon which relationships are designed to function. They function regardless of your religious belief, they just, re, what god you worship. It doesn't matter. Law of worship: I behold and we become changed. Law of liberty, law of exertion. If you want to get strong at something, you must exercise it. If you don't use it, you Lose it. doesn't matter your religious persuasion. All these laws and design programs, this is design law. This truth is how God built the universe to run. We understand this. We become much more effective in presenting God's kingdom. That's how these proverbs can be true for Egyptians and Hebrews. That's right. If if they're a revelation of natural law, they're true across all all boundaries. Sunday's lesson, the title, The Knowledge of Truth. What do you think of the title, The Knowledge of Truth? Is there a difference between knowing about something or someone and knowing something or someone? We've talked about examples of this before. I do this with, with relationships. You know life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. Not that they might know about you, the only true God. See, most of us in here know things, things about. George Bush, Barack Obama, and many other people. But how many of you know them? See, it becomes very clear. No, we don't know them. No, don't know them at all. How many have a relationship with God like this? Like taking out a, uh, a biography on, on Ronald Reagan and study his life, and we learn all these things about him. But do you know him? Spend your life studying all about the theology of, of God. Do you know him? Yes.
1: You could probably speak more to this than I did, but it seems like the knowledge of what we should do also is different than the neural pathways that we generate by continually doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, there's a difference between, for instance, cognitive knowledge and experiential knowledge. Did you know with an Alzheimer's patient, an Alzheimer's patient who maybe um, uh, did a particular motor task for years and years and years, that if you put uh, say say they were they repaired a, a carburetor for for years they just what they did over and over again they they couldn't tell you anything how do you repair couldn't tell you don't even know what a carburetor is put one in front of them they just repair the thing
2: or singing songs that they knew
0: or singing songs this is another classic yes and if you can see Alzheimer's patients you can say can you tell me the words of this song no chance you start playing the music they'll start singing they have an experiential knowledge because they've done it. And it gets wired in differently than just cognitive awareness.
1: But you have to start somewhere, and the cognitive awareness is, is kind of a good place to start to tell you what you should be doing.
0: So knowledge of truth isn't just awareness of truth, is it? Right. But experience of truth. This is out of Review and Herald, April 28, 1896. The highest education includes the knowledge of the Word of God and is comprehended in the words of Christ, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, when you assent. The highest class of education is that which will give such knowledge and discipline as will lead to the best development of character and will fill the soul and will fit the soul for that life which measures with the life of God. The highest education will be that which we teach our children and youth, our teachers and educators. I love these words, the science of Christianity. That we give them an experimental knowledge of God's ways. The highest education is the understanding of the science of Christianity and an experimental knowledge of God's ways impart to them the lessons which Christ gave to his disciples of the paternal character of God. What's the paternal mean? The fatherly character of God. So, if you hear this, what's the highest. That you, what does this mean? How do you put these pieces together? What do you understand it to be saying? The science of Christianity. Based on natural law. Based on design law. God's the creator. He built the fabric of the universe, He constructed it to operate in certain ways, and therefore there is design law, predictable. You can test That's cause and effect. It means you can reproduce it,
1: whether it's coming from a Christian source or another source get reproduced.
0: Yes, if if a Christian and a non-Christian both brush their teeth, you get different outcomes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> if a Christian and a non-Christian both generally love their spouse and, and are self self-sacrificial and 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 do they get different outcomes if it works that? No, yes.
1: My analogy to this is is what I do in in my professional life and that is we have a group of 15 people who were selected very rigorously, into a program of training. They have scored, over the last three years, 98th percentile in the nation. Their, their head knowledge is wonderful, but the, a first-year resident or a second-year resident is not going to operate on you as well as a fifth-year resident. And I think a first-year Christian or a second-year Christian is still a Christian. Yes but they may not have the neural pathways in which they and good judgments and everything else. Yes. That someone who with practice, as you mentioned in Hebrews. Yes. It's just not not coming up with the right answer. It's coming up with the right behavior and the right decision-making and whatnot because you've practiced and done it over and over again in a broad spectrum of environments.
0: And thus you have experience with it. Right. And so are there ever times where uh, a first-year resident intern, resident, second year, might be asked to leave the program. Yeah. And, is, is it be, and, and it would one of those factors be if they came to believe as a first-year intern, they knew everything there was to know and there's nothing more to learn? And they, wouldn't, and they couldn't be taught? Yeah. Would they be asked to leave? That would be sad. It would be. and this So, the, so, so he's right. And, and, and so if, as a babe in Christ... You remain teachable. This is what it says in Thessalonians that those who are lost are lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. They didn't have a heart that was willing to grow and advance. They didn't keep their minds open forever developing an advancement in light and knowledge to keep growing and apply that in their development. They came to a point where we have the truth. They set down their stakes, their doctrinal stakes of truth. They began defending those doctrinal stakes, which means they had to reject any new advancing light because that would somehow uproot where they currently practiced. And they became traditionalists. And they practiced traditional medicine. They wanted to pull out the leeches and the bleeding.
1: Does that sound familiar or what?
0: Yes. So I think this is great stuff. This is out of Bible Echo, December 19th. 1904. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience, now you're just going to follow this. Think of this. This is talking Christian life now. This is not talking surgical operating room. This is talking Christian life. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice. Uncontrolled by previously established opinion and habits, the results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every point that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. Understanding design, how the world actually operates, how the universe is governed, that you test your theories with reality and you modify your conclusions based. Next paragraph. That which many term experience is not experience at all. It has resulted from mere habit, or from a course of indulgence thoughtlessly and often ignorantly followed. There has not been a fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Experience which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature, is not to be relied upon. Superstition arising from a diseased imagination is often arrayed in opposition to reason and to scientific principles. To many a person the idea that others may gainsay what he has learned by experience seems folly and even cruelty itself. There are more erroneous there's more errors received and held through false ideas of what experience of, of experience than from any other cause. Wow. This is Bible Echo, December 19, 1904. Isn't that brilliant? This is talking religious stuff. Do you Have you experimented? Have you had trial and error? Have you checked your religious conclusions and beliefs with the design and how things actually work in reality? The integrative evidence-based approach we talk about in here. Yes?
2: I, while you were talking, I just looked up the definition of the word science, and it was so interesting in the first few sentences of the quote you just read. She gave the... The Wikipedia definition of science.
0: Exactly right. That's what it is. So, is God's law natural, the unchangeable principles of nature? Is that what God's law is? So then what is superstition? What is superstition? Superstition is believing that if you break a mirror, you have seven years' bad luck. Or... Walk under a ladder, or have a black cat walk in front of you—that somehow it changes your life. This is; these are the classic examples of superstition. I just want to to connect you with that, and let's go to some other ones. Superstition is believing that if you eat food offered to idols, that the idol now has power over you. That's superstition. Superstition is 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 believing if you stop and get gas in your car on Sabbath, you're under Satan's power. <laughs> Superstition is believing if you go to a movie theater, God's angels wait at the door. Superstition is living living in violation of God's law, his design law, designed for life, and then praying for deliverance from the consequences. Smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, but praying for healthy lungs. Cheating on your spouse, but praying for a happy marriage. This is superstition. Superstition is believing if you name something, you have power over it. This is a really, this is up and coming in Christianity right now. There's the naming theology going on. That if you name it, that you have power over it. And you can cast it out by naming it. You've heard this coming up? Superstition is believing that truth is only found in the King James Bible. This is superstition. Superstition is believing rituals have power and must be done in the right way or the proper geographic location. And if you don't do the ritual in the right way or do it in the proper location, then you haven't received the transforming benefit of that ritual. Superstition is believing one is in legal trouble with God and God requires a legal payment or else he'll kill you. This is superstition. Superstition is believing anything that requires you not to think, to shut down reasoning and to believe things that are not consistent with the evidence that God has provided. That's superstition. You know, they gave the, uh, in the olden days, you know where hocus pocus came from. When they did the mass in Latin, hocus corpus, the body of Christ, hocus corpus, hocus pocus, hocus pocus. They had no idea what it meant. Something magic was happening though. And it's superstition to believe if you eat a wafer, it turns to flesh halfway down your esophagus before it hits your stomach. Superstition. What is true knowledge? It is not theoretical, cognitive, but it's experiential. Sadly, many Christians rest satisfied on theoretical knowledge of a superstitious nature and thus have no power. There's no power. And they live in fear and insecurity. With this in mind, look at the fifth paragraph, number two. It says, conviction. Students should know why these words of, of truth are certain. They should know why they believe what they do. Faith, by definition, is belief in what we don't fully understand. Nevertheless, we should have good reasons for the faith. Hmm. I'm going to tell you this definition of faith, I believe, is a false definition. And it leads to superstition and, in, and believing in incredulous things. Yes.
1: I, I read that this week, and I was <coughs> concerned about that statement. And I said, no, faith is trusting what you do know and understand, so that when something you don't understand presents itself, you'll have confidence.
0: This is exactly right. Oh. By, by defin- by faith, by definition, is not the belief in things we don't understand. Faith, by definition, is trust in someone you know yes. without doubt is trustworthy. That's what faith is. Our faith is in God, not in the knowledge of the universe, not in how the universe or the future is going to turn out, not in how every system of the universe operates. We don't know all the details, everything. Our faith is not in all these systems. Our faith is in God. That's where our faith is. And God has provided abundant evidence of his existence and his trustworthiness, supremely revealed in the life and death of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So our faith is never this faith without knowing. This is why so many people have very little faith, because they're told to believe in what you know ain't so. Believe even though you know better. Trust even though it it, it doesn't make sense.
1: Isn't faith trusting something that you've experienced to be true a lot of times?
0: Yes, this is also faith and confidence in things you know. So a classic example would be, you haven't been brushing your teeth, and you've got cavities, and you're very distressed, and you're hurting, and you're praying for deliverance. And somebody tells you that there is a health care provider in your community. If you go to them, they'll take care of your, your problem and pain. And you go to them, and they tell you, what you need to do is you need to have faith that your older brother has brushed their teeth perfectly. And, and if you accept that, they will put a record of perfectly brushed teeth in your dental record. And then if you claim that record in your behalf, we will declare you to have perfect teeth. Do you understand what I just said is what is taught as the, as the, as the bastion, the core of penal substitutionary theology? And there's no power there. You're still sick. You're still hurting. You're not transformed. It's fabricate, it's superstition.
2: Tim, on the superstition uh, list that you went through. Quick question for you, and you may have had a, a, a di- different scenario in mind. Back in the Old Testament, where uh, the individual was off, chose to offer sacrifices to God separate from the the established locations, and wanted to do it on their own, and that was uh, not acceptable. How does the having the ritual and doing it in the right place being a superstition, and the the Saying uh, the teaching back then of that was not the correct way to do it. How does that jive?
0: Did you have a comment you wanted to make to that? Your hand popped up.
1: I will have to say I have to modify her a little bit. It, it was an ideal place because there are instructions for if you do not have, if you cannot return, here's how to do it.
0: Do it here. Do it there. Do this other thing. Lots of lot of accommodations made. But even so, Israel was Israel. The nation of Israel was an acting troop. <clears throat> Acting, a troupe of actors that had a stage and a co- and costumes and props and a script. And if you're in a, in a production, in a play, in a drama, you're supposed to stay on script. If you go off script, then you're removed from the play. Because if you go off script, then you're not representing what the drama is supposed to teach. It was a teaching tool. And so you'll find that there were certain ways to do things in Old Testament times only to have the right illustration revealed. Not because there was some power in doing it. You did not have to participate in the system at all to have salvation. Naaman and Nebuchadnezzar, as far as we know, never sacrificed an animal in the Jewish system. But they're going to be in heaven, as far as we know. But if you wanted to be one of the actors in the play, then you had to follow the script. And that was the difference. Yes.
2: I think also when you look at things, when someone is really sick or emotionally weak, trying to start a new journey, a new path, you put them in a very structured situation because that helps them to determine or to establish new ways of thinking, new habits, new methods, new motives. And I think God did that with the children of Israel too. He put them in a very structured situation because They were struggling.
0: Yeah, come on March 21 to our program, and I will take you through step by step many of the things that happened in this period of time in history and why God was doing it in our second talk. Monday's lesson, Robbing the Poor, it says in the first paragraph, though it's always wrong to steal, this prohibition concerns stealing from the poor and the oppressed who are the most vulnerable. They are truly helpless and therefore they qualify for God's special concern. The case of David who killed Uriah in order to steal his wife in Nathan's parable of the ewe lamb comes to mind. Robbing from the poor is not just a, uh, a criminal act, it is a sin against the Lord. To take from someone who has less than you... Uh, Less than you have is worse than stealing. It is also an act of cowardice. Do these thieves think that God doesn't see their actions? What do you hear is the reason that stealing is wrong here? God's watching. God's watching and he's watching and if you and if you don't watch out, you know he's going there's going to be a if you think I'm I'm wrong about the next paragraph. Indeed, Proverbs 22:23 implies that even if the thief gets away with no human punishment, God will repay. And what level of maturity is this operating? Two. Level 2, level 1 punishment and reward. Yeah. Possibly level 4, there's a system of laws and we're 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 deviating from those laws and somebody's going to enforce those laws and punish, but it's certainly level 4 and below. Is it true that uh, it's always true that stealing is wrong? This true. Stealing is wrong. But why? Why is it wrong? It damages, the it damages us. He says it damages us. So what does it do to the thief? It sears the conscience, it damages the reason, it warps the character, it inflames selfishness, and ultimately destroys the one who steals. This is why it's wrong. We're about your scenario
1: from a couple weeks ago with stealing a truck? Stealing what? Review it, <laughs> please.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, the, the stealing of so you're so you're in a Nazi German concentration camp, and you can you can you can escape with a whole bunch of people about to be murdered by the Nazis, but you have to steal a German truck to do so.
1: No problem. Does that, steer, does that steer one's conscience?
0: Well, see, the, the issue there isn't uh, really probably stealing. Correct. It's other-centered. Yeah, you're, you're focusing on the well-being of others. Right. So stealing is about self-centered actions to aggrandize or promote self at the expense of another person, to take advantage of another one, to put one ahead, not to deliver someone who's being oppressed or or, or injured. So... What law lens do you see this through? Who created reality? How does the fabric of the cosmos work? What happens if you deviate from the design? So how does God repay? By removing his restraining hand and allowing people to reap what they've chosen. To stop interfering with the consequence. If you're out of harmony with his design and you persist and persist and persist, he eventually lets you reap what you've chosen.
2: In order to set things right.
0: Third paragraph, it says, So this warning, along with others in the Bible, speaks against those who are interested only in the immediate gains of their action and not the long-term results. They take possession and enlarge their properties at the expense of others, and they are willing to cheat and kill for that purpose. They may enjoy it now, but they will pay later. This is this reasoning should not only discourage the thief, it should show that our ethical values are intricately tied with the sovereignty of God. I really hate this. I really hate this type of thinking. Uh First off, what is suggested as a reason we should be discouraged from sealing in here? External. External, there's an accounting one day, and you'll be punished for doing wrong. And the problem with this theology and reasoning, first is, it motivates to what motivation? Fear. And, and self-centeredness. It's all about me, protecting me, protecting myself, avoiding punishment, making sure that I get a reward in heaven. It puts me at the center, number one. This is the language that Paul speaks about in Hebrews 5 about the immature who haven't yet become acquainted with righteousness or focused on repentance from acts that lead to death. It's all about them and about their repentance. Uh, What Paul said to to Timothy in First Timothy, that the law was not given for the righteous, but for the wicked, for the slave traders and the murderers and those who disobey their parents, who people's hearts are still self-centered and was given to diagnose them and let them know there's something wrong. So the first problem, it appeals to selfish motives. Second problem... To obey for this reason, if this is the reason that you obey, it creates rebels against God. It doesn't bring people into reconciliation with God to obey for this reason. This was the Jews 2,000 years ago obeying for this reason, and they hated God and they killed him. It creates rebels against God. People either become hard-hearted Pharisees and petty spies and judges, or they rebel against God completely, deny his existence, and leave the church. And, I, and for those of you who need an Ellen White quote to believe what I just said. <laughs> Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are counted as a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. Mm, and this is uh, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery, It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time. In bitter murmurings and complaints, such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. Just look at human history when you have a dictator in power, and the people fear for their life. If you question anything and step out of line, you'll be executed. And so they obey. They obey everything. But what's going on in their heart? They're looking for a way to overthrow the dictator. They're looking for a way to rebel. Or... They become the pliable, thoughtless adherents that believe without question and the dictator becomes the one they follow thoughtlessly. It's one of the two. And when we present God in this way, we create people that are self-centered, we drive people into rebellion away from the church and away from God, or we drive them into this thoughtless, mindless Christianity. And the third problem, it misrepresents God as a dictator who operates on laws no different than created beings make. He's not the creator who who designs the fabric of the cosmos and his laws are the protocols upon which reality operate. No, 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 no. We've ripped him down off his throne and we tell, we suggest that he just makes up rules like we do with no inherent consequence, but he's more powerful. He's got more angels with more flaming swords than we've got so he can enforce his rules. And you better watch out because he's got a recording angel who's going to keep track of you and if he finds out you've got something you didn't get the proper legal pardon, then he will kill you. You better watch out. It distorts God's character, undermines trust. It obstructs the work of the Holy Spirit and keeps people trapped in religious <clears throat> cycles of abuse and violence. Thus, we find ourselves at the end of time where Paul warned Timothy in Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this. Mark it down. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. When? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and holy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than the lovers of God, having a evolutionary mindset, an atheistic way of looking at the world, no a form of godliness, but denying its power. These are religious people who have a legal Humanistic, when I say human law construct, projected on heaven, where they teach that God is a, a cosmic dictator who makes rules and will enforce those rules, and it has no power to deliver people. It, re, it it just results in them becoming these petty spies and rebels in heart. That are and you can see it in the churches. of are the legalistic people who have to keep all the rules, and if anybody doesn't keep the rule, they're the first to want to condemn. But of course, they want to do it under the right context. I want to pray for brother so and so in prayer meeting, and they want to out them. <laughs> you know what I 'm talking about, right? <laughs> yes, go ahead.: You know we scoff at um, some of the brothers and sisters out there that
1: teach a hell and brimstone message, but yet how different is that message from it?
0: This is exactly right. This is the essence of the beast. Bible imagery, beasts represent what? What do beasts represent in Bible imagery? Mm-hmm. Kingdoms of the world. And how do the kingdoms of the world govern? With what method? Coercion, Coercive pressure. Thus, when you teach God, governs like that, you're teaching God is like the beast. It's beastly to do so. Back again to what's happening in the Islamic world. And when you have people being burned in cages because they believe different than you, or cutting their heads off because they believe different than you, this is beastly. The specific specific doctrine is irrelevant. Day of worship, form of baptism, method of communion, that doesn't matter. What matters is are you coercing people to conform? That's what matters, yes.
1: Uh, The sovereignty of God. There's groups that really find that, that God is sovereign and responsible for every single thing, good and bad, which leads even to predestination, thought, and so forth.
0: So this is an excellent point. And how you handle handle the sovereignty of God, it comes back to what we've really been honing in on here for the last couple of years. Which law lens do you see it through? They see sovereignty through a humanistic, created being law lens of a system of rules that he is in control. He makes up rules and he makes things happen his way because he's sovereign and he's in control. Rather than seeing his sovereignty through how he's designed reality to operate and he is sovereign, it's true the mechanisms that he has designed life to operate upon. So number one, God is love. Therefore, God will never violate his character of love, and he operates in harmony with his nature of love, which requires genuine freedom of choice. And it's his method of accomplishing it, so his sovereignty is, is, is um, experienced or understood through his design for life. And this is why he worked through Christ, to bring reconciliation, rather than just say, get in line or I'm going to kill you. Yes?
1: You may have had this conversation a hundred times. I'm sorry, I haven't been here recently, but... Do you feel when you went to the uh, tie rack this morning and picked that tie out that God already knew which one you were going to pick?
0: Different question. We're not going to go there today on on foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a different different question. See, there's a difference between foreknowledge and causality, and oh, people get confused under foreknowledge and causality. They think if God happens to know some people, that, that if he knows the future decisions you're going to make, then he's causing the future decisions you're going to make. This is an error in thinking. Um, it would be if you and I had a time machine, traveled into the future, watched the next Super Bowl, saw every play, come back today through time, and we now know, we have foreknowledge. of What's going to happen? Are we causing it to happen? No, foreknowledge is not causality. And I do believe personally God has foreknowledge, and there's lots of evidence in Scripture for this. Um, either he's a fraud when he's having Noah preach that everyone can get on the ark, or he knew there would only be eight people getting in the ark. If he didn't know, there should have been a fleet of arks being built. <laughs> Seriously. So he either doesn't know, or he's a fraud. Okay? So And there's lots and lots and lots more examples. All right. So those who, again, would like a quote from um, Ellen White to support this idea of compelling power, this is at our Desire of Ages 759. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. And this is Review and Herald, September 7, 1897. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one picks up a pebble and casts it to the earth. Of course, he's the creator. I mean, he's the creator. How hard would it be for the creator to destroy a created being? It's easy, okay? But by doing so, he would have given a precedent for the exercise of force. All compelling power. How much? All compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work in this line. This principle is wholly of Satan's creation. Get your mind around this, because so much of Christianity teaches that God is exactly like Satan says he is, and God uses Satan's method, and that God is going to come back. This is this is where the world is going to go. When Satan comes impersonating Christ, the world is going to go, this is our God, we have waited for him, because he's going to come back, and he's going to start with melodious words, he's going to talk about how he loves us all, and how he's given his life for us, and he only wants to heal and restore us, but he has a law, and He and he's given us another chance. If you just obey his law, then he'll give us grace and forgiveness, but if not, justice will require that I punish you. And I'll first imprison you to try to convince you it's the right way to go. But if you still won't repent and love me, then I will be forced because justice requires that I kill you. And the world is going to go, that's perfect, that's how God is. I read a quote in here about some of, uh, uh, well, last week I think it was, from people who have written online against what, I, what we teach here. And they actually said that to them, it is holy for God to act this way. It is Satan's version of God. And Satan will win the world except for the the few, the elect, who have actually come to know God themselves. So, I'm going to have to... Boy, there's so much good stuff in the lesson this week. I'm going to have to jump down. I'm going to skip the whole idea of being jealous of the wicked and skip the story. It's a story in the lesson, in Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. The title for the day is What We Put in Our Mouths. In the first sentence, it says, It is no accident that the first human temptation concerned food. And when I read that, I laughed. I laughed. I, I, I read it to Christie. I said, "Oh, this is hysterical!" Because the implication—the implication—is that the temptation regarding food was somehow calculated by the enemy, and therefore wasn't an accident. Well, it is true it wasn't an accident, but it wasn't because it was calculated by the enemy. If God had said, regarding a small, little, beautiful pond in Eden, "All bodies of water upon the earth you may swim in, except this pond. And the day you swim in this pond, you will surely die," what would the devil tempted them on? Okay, come on. This was set up by God to be the temptation on eating the fruit. This wasn't some calculated point on the part of the devil to suggest, well, they're weak in appetite. They've got a weakness in their appetite. They don't have good self-control. They've got lust and passions that they can't control. We'll tempt them on appetite. Ridiculous. There was no problem in their self-governance or their appetite issues. And for them to come back, because we struggle with that today, and project this back and say, oh, you know, there was no accident, it was on appetite. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you actually need another one of those quotes to support me in this, (laughs) Review and Herald, January 9, 1886. Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. What was the sin? Believing Believing the lies about God. Remember that whole cascade of, of, of events that we've gone in here? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you anymore. I I believe you're lying to me. You're not looking out for my good. I've got to watch out for myself. And fear and selfishness result in acts of sin taking the fruit to get ahead because I don't trust God's going to get me ahead. i got to get myself ahead. The actual taking the fruit is the third step down in a change of the inner man going because we believe lies about God and have the trust relationship broken with him. But what happens when you're level four and below thinking, level four and below thinking don't understand this, and they want to focus simply on behavior. Taking the fruit. But it was the, and this is why Christ said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good man brings forth good, the good in him, the evil man brings forth the evil, the evil in him. You say if you commit adultery, bad behavior commits in, I say if you look at one with lust in your heart, blah, blah, blah. It's all, these behaviors are an expression of what's going on in the heart. And then the second paragraph talks about the wickedness and evil of alcohol. It says, um, Who hasn't personally seen just how devastating alcohol can be? Surely not everyone who drinks becomes a drunk in the gutter, but most likely drunks in the gutter never imagined the first time they took a drink that that's where they would end up and so forth and so on. No doubt in our society, alcohol causes unsold pain, suffering, and death. average age of first drink in America is age 12. 20% of teens between 12 and 20 are binge drinkers. It's one in five are binge drinkers, drinking to full intoxication. Adolescent drinkers score worse than non-users in vocabulary, general information, memory, cognition. Perform worse in school, more likely to fall behind, more likely to drop out, have social problems, depression, suicidal thoughts. Uh, They have altered sleep cycles and have increasing risk of strokes than those who don't drink. Adults. And I've got some more stats in here about alcohol. Uh, nearly 88,000 people die from alcohol-related causes each year in America. Uh, in 2012, alcohol impaired driving fatalities death account- accounted for 10,322 deaths. That's uh, 31% of all driving fatalities were alcohol-related, one in three. So, with all that in mind, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna sit here and promote alcohol as a good thing. We're not gonna do that. However, Was it possible in Bible times, without refrigeration, to consistently store juices without it either turning to wine or vinegar?
1: No,
0: no, no. Get your mind around reality here. So what do you make then of the scriptures, 1 Timothy 3.8? I'll read it out of NIV, English Standard, King James, and then, my paraphrase, The Remedy. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging much wine. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Church stewards must be honorable people, dedicated, responsible, with mature character, not drunkards. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> or, 1 Timothy 5.23. Again, I'll read the same four. Paul's writing to Timothy, t- instructing him on how to, how to take care of himself. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. And my expanded paraphrase. As you travel, don't be so insistent on water only, and pure water may be causing many of your digestive problems. Drink a little wine, as the wine will often kill the contaminants and reduce your risk of sickness. <laughs> Do you hear the little grumbles and mumbles in the room?
2: Well, they, don't, they, they say it's good for the stomach. Mm-hmm.
0: They
2: don't say what it does
0: to the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what what is the Bible position on alcohol consumption and why? Oh.
1: And consumption?
2: Say that again. <laughs> say it again.
0: I said, what is the Bible position on alcohol consumption and why? I didn't bring in Deuteronomy 14. Where it tells you to drink strong drink? Yeah, to take your tithe and buy fermented wine and come and rejoice before the Lord.
2: Well,
0: and the Hebrew is specific for the fermented, not the unfermented. was not to
1: do too much. Right.
2: And in the, the proverbs that was uh, part of this week's is to not be a drunkard. Uh, don't get yourself soused and uh, feel like you've been beaten up and then wake up to want more wine.
0: So level four and below will take this idea and create a rule. It is sin if you drink alcohol. Level four and below. Level Level five and above recognize the principles of how life is designed, and you're always to be taking actions that are not damaging to the spirit temple, but healthy and promoting life for the spirit temple. So if you're adolescent in a fit of despair after a breakup with a girlfriend, overdose on antifreeze, Hmm. what would you do for them? Would you follow the rule, no alcohol? Or would you get them drunk as quickly as you possibly could? See, antifreeze kills because the product, ethylene glycol, when it's broken down in your liver, creates two byproducts, one of which is toxic to your kidneys and will destroy your kidneys and put you into renal failure, and you'll die from this. However, the, the enzyme in the liver that breaks ethylene glycol into these byproducts that are toxic is also the same enzyme that alcohol uses to be broken down into its benign products of water and carbon dioxide and that alcohol is 100 times more, um, has 100 times more affinity to that enzyme pathway than ethylene glycol. So if they're drunk, the, the enzyme pathway is completely occupied by alcohol, so the toxins uh, can't be produced uh, by the metabolism through the liver, and that if you keep the ethylene glycol unmetabolized, the kidneys will excrete it without any harm to you over the course of 24 to 48 hours. So, what would you do? And so, the treatment, if somebody overdoses and they go to the ER, they will either give them IV 5 to 10% ethanol in a dextrose solution, or they'll give them whiskey, vodka, or, um, was it whiskey, vodka, or gin to drink? That's the treatment. But would you then say, no, 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 we we believe that it's sin to drink alcohol, and, and you can't give my child any of that? What would you do?
1: Well, you've already committed the sin with the ethylene glycol. So.
0: <laughs> you could call it sin. I don't know. It do- uh, what are
2: your priorities?
0: How many of you have ever had cough syrup in your life? Most cough syrups are suspended in 25% alcohol, which makes it 50% 50 proof.
2: Vanilla and your brownies.
1: Yeah. Geritol. Mm-hmm.
2: Geratol.
0: So the Bible principle, the Bible principle is operating in harmony with God's design to promote what is healthiest to the body, including the brain. If one has an illness of some kind, which is damaging and destructive to the body, and alcohol can cure that illness, as long as the cure isn't worse than the illness. You hear what I said? As long as the cure isn't worse than the illness. It is in harmony with God's plan to use it. By the way, why do you have liver enzymes that break down alcohol anyway? Because every time you eat, your digested. You're, the bacteria in your gut produce some amount of alcohol that are designed to be broken down so it never makes it to your brain. That's why. You can't eat without producing alcohol in your GI system.
2: Well, you can find alcohol in nature anyway.
0: Yes. So, let's see then, in Thursday's lesson, we're going to close with Thursday's lesson, the dark section at the top says, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked up from, from his ways, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. And there's a story here. It says, Years ago, in a big western city, a woman was being attacked at, uh, at night on, on a street. She cried out for help. Dozens heard her, yet not one person even bothered to call the police. Most people t- looked out the window and then went back to whatever they were doing. Soon the woman's cry stopped. Later she was found dead, stabbed, murdered n- numerous times. Were the people who heard her cries but did nothing responsible for her death? Though, though they hadn't attacked her himself, did they, did their inaction kill her? And so this is going to that, that statement we read at the top. How do you understand this idea that if you see a wicked man in their wickedness, and you don't warn him. His blood will be counted. what is was to say, I will require at your hand. God will require their blood at your hand. Level 1 through 4 thinking. They view it judicially through a lens of imperialism and sovereignty over a system of rules, and therefore uh, they think that God has some judicial proceeding in heaven. Your name will be called up. They will evaluate what you did and didn't do. You'll be found guilty for not acting in righteousness, and then you will be, have a meted-out punishment you will have to pay for level five through seven, understand reality actually doesn't really work that way, and understand how reality does work, so then how is it that God requires it? It's via your restoration to love. Consider the story of the woman we just read, and you were there, and you watched, you went back to your TV program, and the next morning you found out it was your wife, your daughter, your girlfriend, your sister. Now, how do you feel? their blood, you will feel, has been on your hands. Because you could have acted and potentially saved them, and you didn't. Would it feel different if that was your wife, your mother, your sister? And when we are restored to love, and we've let people go, and we see that they could have been reached, but we didn't, we will have this grieving loss in our soul for them. This is how their blood is required at our hand. It's not an infliction. It's beautiful, really, if you think about it. And then, it says the law of Moses clearly warns that those who fail to report what they witness will bear guilt. We may be able to act against crime, but if we keep silent about what we see, we may not be able to act against crime, but if we, we keep silent about what we see, then we shall stare, stare in the guilt of the criminal. If you don't report... Which you see, you're going to share in the guilt. How do we understand this? Level again, one through four, it's that earthly legal mindset, falsely can lose God in some tribunal, hold a legal accountability session, and then meets out punishments. But level five through seven realizes the nature of sin and its devastation on how life is built to operate, resulting in pain and suffering and death, and that it is contagious. When people do evil against somebody, it plants seeds of resentment, bitterness, anger, uh, hostility, and sin spreads like this. And therefore... Uh, not reporting it allows the disease to continue to spread whereas reporting it so that you can be intervened upon to seek redemption consequence not for the purpose of punitiveness but for the purpose of saving so example imagine how you would feel if you knew, knew somebody was actively infected with Ebola and you knew they were going to get on the subway and then fly to New York and you didn't do anything and you let them go and a huge outbreak happens This is what it's talking about, that we have a responsibility to warn and protect when we know that that pain and suffering is going to be inflicted upon others. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your character. It makes so much difference to see you as designer, creator, the God of love who has constructed the universe to operate in harmony with your nature and we see how far out of harmony we are. We ask for your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help our minds break out of this imperialistic distortion that has just clouded the whole world. Prepare us to be witnesses for you that we can lighten the world with the final message of mercy so you can come and take us home. We pray in your holy name. Amen.